We are in Romans 10, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 tonight. Romans 10, 1 through 4. If you would please follow along with me as I read the passage before we get started here tonight. Romans 10, 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is the passage for tonight. Allow me to pray for us one last time. Lord God, we pray that you'd be glorified tonight in what we say and what we do. I pray that we would see your great holiness, that we would see your great righteousness, and that we would see our great need for you. That we would love you, that we would have a love for one another, love for your people, love for the lost. I pray you'd bless this time tonight as we approach your word. God, that you would indeed speak to us your truth and only your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Maybe uh, as you guys are growing up, you are wondering what you want to be when you grow up. Right? Maybe when you're younger, you're thinking, oh, I want to. I want to be this. I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be an astronaut. I want to, you know, whatever. Whatever it is that you want to be. And maybe you're not sure what you want to be. And I'm sure by the time now till when you grow up to be a grown-up, grow up to be a grown-up, yeah, that's what they do, then you'll figure out what, you know, you'll always change. Oh, I want to be this. I want to be that. Whatever it might be. Uh, I've always wanted to be different things. Uh, if you were at winter camp, I'm sorry, at summer camp, um, my dad spoke on some of the things that I, I wanted to be when I grew up. And he mentioned one of them that I want to mention tonight. And I'll give it a little bit more detail than what he did. No, not the dancing. I'm not talking about me wanting to be a dancer. I know. That's for another time. Another, no, not tonight. Not the sumo either. No, I'm not talking about the sumo. No. I forgot about that. Thank you, Joe. About when I wanted to be a firefighter. Did he talk about when I wanted to be a firefighter? Do you remember this? Maybe not, right? But... I, this was probably junior high when I wanted to be a firefighter. And the reason why I started thinking, I was like, man, they got a good schedule. Like, they get like, I don't know what it is for real, but at least at the time I was thinking, they, they get four days off? And then you just work three days? And then like, and you get to sleep there? Like you get paid for sleeping? You just hang out at the firehouse playing games? And then, you know, for three days, then you get four days. Off. Like, the schedule seemed great. I remember going to a firehouse and looking at the fireman's pole and thinking, I get to go up and down that all day? Like, that seems fun. And then really I was like, I get to drive the fire truck. And I was like, I don't want to go on and put my sirens on and just go blazing down the streets. Like, we're getting in that fire. And that's really what I wanted to do. And then I started talking. There was this fireman at our church. His name was Kyle Degg. And he was a firefighter. I was telling him, I want to be a firefighter just like you. Because I want to sleep at the firehouse and go down the pole and drive the fire truck. And he's like, okay, cool, cool. And he's like, so, you know, like, how are you with medical things? 
And I'm like, oh, horrible. That's why I don't want to be, like, you know, in an ambulance. I want to be a firefighter. And he was explaining to me, like, oh, no, like, you see blood and you have to do all this stuff. And I was like, oh, no, I can't do that. And I was like, no, no, but, like, I, I don't want to go do that stuff. I'm just going to chill in the firehouse and then drive the fire truck. Like, I'm pulling up to the fire, like, all right, guys, go get the fire. And he's like, no, you have to go in and fight the fire. You have to go in and save people and, like, do all this stuff. And I was like, oh. And, and, and really, like, I was all excited about being a firefighter. And I thought, yeah, I know I know what it means to be a firefighter. Like, this is what I get to do. I see him. I do all But really, when I actually talked to a firefighter, I, I realized – I had a huge misunderstanding and really an ignorance of what it meant to be a firefighter. I didn't know that you actually had to fight fires and help people that are bleeding and hurt. And that's not what I realized it really was, which seems foolish, I know. But that was my misunderstanding. And in a similar way, when we look at Israel, we see that Israel, they knew very much about God, but they were lacking and they were ignorant in what mattered. Much like me, I, I, I knew maybe a lot about what it meant to be a firefighter, but I was really ignorant of what mattered, of what it really meant to be a firefighter. Many of the Jewish people, they knew a lot about the word of God. Many of them being very zealous for its teachings, for the teachings of God's word. In fact, they held teachers and rabbis to a very great status. They, they valued the teachings and the instructions of God's word, and they held firm to the traditions of in which they created. And they put great effort into knowing and into living out the teachings of God's word. The problem is that they had a misunderstanding of the true meaning of his word. And really what it boiled down to is that they rejected the very subject and the heart of God's word, which is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And this passage we once again see Paul's heart for Israel as he explains that their zeal and their, and their righteousness were misdirected. And instead, he points them to where their gaze ought to be, which is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're looking at tonight. We're going to have three main points. We're going to see Paul's heart. We're going to see Israel's misdirection. And then we're going to see Christ's righteousness. Those are our three main points for tonight. First, we see Paul's heart in verse 1. Paul's heart. And what we see, your one sub-point for this, is that Paul desires for Israel to be saved. Paul desires for Israel to be saved. Look at what he says in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's Israel, is that they may be saved. Paul desires for Israel to be saved. Just as we saw at the beginning of chapter 9, if you were here right at the beginning of chapter 9, we see here as well Paul's genuine heart and concern for his own countrymen. Remember, he being a Jew. And Paul's desire is that they would be saved. And the word for desire here suggests a delight. That Paul would take delight in seeing them being saved. Seeing them saved. This is what he wants. This is what he delights in. And we see his genuine heart for them as he would delight in them coming to his saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
So I ask us tonight, do you take delight in the lost being saved? Do you take delight in that, in the lost being saved? And I'm sure that that you would like it if, if some people would be saved. You can think of people maybe that are close to you that aren't saved, and you you would like it if they were. I'm sure maybe you even pray for them at times. Pray that God would save them. But do you find delight in the lost being found? Do you find delight in the salvation of others? Do you find much joy and pleasure and satisfaction in seeing God call others to himself? Is there joy in that in your heart? This is why I love our baptism services. I've, I've told you guys that before, right? I just love them. They're so great. They're the best time because there's so much joy and pleasure and delight in hearing over and over and over again how God has saved his people. Do you have that joy? Or you're there and you're rejoicing with them like, yes, God got another one. He saved them. And there's joy in that. See, Paul would find great delight in his fellow Jew accepting Jesus as Messiah. His heart is for his people, that they would be saved. So by looking at Paul's heart for Israel to be saved, I want us to focus on two applicable points. So here, we're getting like sub-point into sub-point, and then there's going to be more sub-points to that. It's like, okay, so just be ready, yeah. All right, so... Focus on two applicable points as we look at Paul's heart for Israel to be saved. The first is this, that the doctrine of election should give us a heart for the lost. All right, the doctrine of election, which we talked about mostly in chapter 9 and some in 8 even, the doctrine of election should give us a heart for the lost. Unfortunately, a common rejection or, or, or accusation of the doctrine of election is that if God has already chosen and determined whom he has saved, then there's no point in evangelism, is what some would say. And this is really, it's completely to misunderstand and misapply the doctrine of election. In fact, we see the complete opposite from Paul right here in this passage. He had just got done talking about the doctrine of election, chapter 9, and yet, right away here in chapter 10, he prays that they would be saved. And we ask, well, why, why would you pray? Why, why would you share the gospel? Why would you make sacrifices and have a heart for the lost if God's already determined that he's going to save whom he's going to save? Like, why, why even bother with evangelism? Well, I want to give three reasons why we should still be active in evangelism in light of his divine election. Okay, so now you have, again, three more subpoints to this subpoint. Okay? Three reasons. One... The, the, the first one is because why, why should we care about evangelism in light of God's election? One, we're commanded to do so. <laughs> we're commanded to do so. That's enough reason to be honest right there. We could just end it. God has commanded that we share the good news of his gospel. And we see it over and over and over again in his word. Whether you think it's pointless or not, which it's not, we are commanded by God to do so. And so we do so out of joyful obedience to the Lord. And really, it is a great privilege and responsibility and obligation that God uses us to preach the gospel to the lost. That we are to cherish that role that God has given us. 
We are to evangelize to those around us. Because we are commanded to do so. Secondly, because we don't know the mind of God. Why do we evangelize in light of God's election? We don't know the mind of God. Even though God has already chosen his people, we don't know who those people are. His election is certain and it is absolute, but it is his secret choice. We do not know who he has chosen. Only he does. And so what? So we preach to all, to all people. We sow the seeds and it's God who does the growth according to his will. So we must never have the mindset of, well, I'm not going to preach the gospel because I don't know who, who God has elected and who he hasn't. So I'm not going to preach the gospel because I don't know. Did he elect them? Did he not elect them? That's the complete opposite of the mindset that we should have. We should be saying, I don't know who God has chosen. Therefore, I'm sharing the gospel with everyone like, because I don't know. But God does. I'm sharing the gospel with everyone and God will do his will. So we preach the gospel because we don't know the mind of God. And thirdly, why do we still evangelize? Why do we still preach the gospel in light of his election? Thirdly, because God uses our prayers and our actions as a means to his end. As a means to his end. We do not live just aimlessly without purpose, nor do we just pray empty prayers. But indeed, God works through our lives and he works through our prayers to accomplish his purposes. Has God ordained that someone may be saved? Yes, he has. It is his sovereign choice according to the sovereign plan that this person may be saved. And he has also ordained how they might come to saving faith. And those ways are often through the prayers of his people and through the speaking and preaching of his word. God is all sovereign as we see in the doctrine of election. He's all sovereign. And in his great sovereignty, he has willed that you and I share the gospel. And it very, very well may be his will that he uses those conversations and those prayers to bring others to saving faith. Not in your power, but in his. So be a means in which God uses to bring about his purposes. You see, the doctrine of election should not deter us from sharing the gospel, but rather should give us a heart for evangelism. All right, so first... I say I want to look at two applicable points of Paul's heart for Israel to be saved. The first was that the doctrine of election should give us a heart for the lost. Now, secondly, is that we ought to be fervent in our prayers for the lost. We ought to be fervent in our prayers for the lost. The word Paul uses for prayer is a word that means pleading. His prayer is a plea. It is a persistent petition to God. It's not just a prayer of duty. It's not just a prayer of, of making sure he prays for the next one on the list. And he goes, oh, uh, yeah, uh, it, it looks like now I have the church of Ephesus today. Okay, that's good. Oh, I guess now I have this church. No, 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 it's, it's not just that. But it is a pleading, and it's a persistent pleading with God. That's his prayer. Do you love others in that way? That, that, that you are pleading with God that he would save them. You plead with God that God would save this person. Are you persistent in it? And I know at times it can be discouraging. I know it can be difficult to continue to pray the same prayer for the same person. And it feels like, why am I even praying this? It's not working. 
This is just a waste of time. Do not grow weary, but continue to pray for the lost. And notice exactly what it is Paul's praying for, that they would be saved. That's what he prays for his fellow countrymen, that they would be saved. This really is the most important thing that we can pray for. Should we pray for other things for people? Yes. Right? Should we pray? Someone's sick. Should we pray for them to get good health? Yes. Someone lost a job. Should we pray for that? Yes. You know, someone's having a hard time at school. Should we pray for Yes. Like we should pray for these things. These are good things to pray for. But at the end of the day, it is not the greatest need. And in the end, it doesn't matter if they have good health. It doesn't matter if they have a job. It doesn't matter if they have these things if they are eternally damned to hell. It doesn't matter. It's similar to what Jesus said when he says, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his soul? They can gain all these other things that they think is their greatest need. And we pray for them, and we should. But they can gain all of that. But if they do not have salvation, it doesn't matter. Yes, we ought to extend love and mercy in practical ways to those around us. Yes. But far greater than that, they need the gospel. They need the gospel. Are you a participant of kingdom work? Are you a participant of kingdom work in the spreading of the gospel? Do you partake in that? One way in which you can participate is by faithfully and fervently praying for the salvation of others. Every single one of you can do that. Do you have a heart for the lost? Do you care deeply for those who do not know God? Can you say with Paul, as he says in 2 Timothy 2.10, he says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. You hear that? I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of the chosen that they may obtain salvation through Jesus Christ? Are you willing to? Is your desire for the lost to be found? Or are you content with just living your own life for your own comforts, according to your own time, waiting for God to use other Christians to bring others to himself? Have a heart for the lost. Have a desire and a delight that they may be found. So first we see Paul's heart. Secondly, we see Israel's misdirection. Israel's misdirection, verses 2 and 3. We'll have two subpoints for this. The first one found in verse 2 is Israel's zeal is misdirected. First, in Israel's misdirection, we see that their zeal is what is misdirected. Israel's zeal is misdirected. If you look at verse 2, he says, For I bear them witness. That they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
He gives his fellow countrymen credit. He says, they are zealous. Like, I give them credit. I bear them witness. They, they are zealous. And indeed they were. See, to be zealous means to have great energy. To be zealous means to have enthusiasm in the pursuit of something. And Paul knows this all too well. As a Pharisee, he was very zealous. But like his fellow Jews, his zeal was directed in the wrong place. Zeal does not save you. Nor is it an indication that you are saved. You understand that? That your zeal, it does not save you. And, and it's not always an indication that you are saved. Maybe we look at someone in the church and we see them doing all these things. And we're like, man, look at them. They're raising their hand to pray for Dubon. Man, look at them. They're serving on service day. And look, they're, they're doing an operation Christmas child. And look, they're helping these people. And they're going to church. And they're doing this. And they're, and they're serving our worship team. And they're all these things. Look at them. And they're mad. You should hear them in discussion groups. And we look at them and we say, wow, man, they're on fire for the Lord. Look how zealous they are for God. Their zeal, their fire is not the basis of their salvation. In fact, they may not even be saved. A non-Christian can easily do any of those things enthusiastically. And they can be a good example to everyone else. But be far from God. And the scary thing is, they may not even realize it. Because in their minds, their, their zealous service for God is the basis of their salvation. See, zeal directed in the wrong subject is a very dangerous thing. This is so important for us to know. Especially in our pluralistic society. There is a common belief and a misunderstanding that as long as someone is sincere and zealous for what they believe in, then that's okay. There are teachings, even in so-called Christian churches, that teach, hey, there are good Christians and there's bad Christians. And there's good Muslims and bad Muslims and good Catholics and bad Catholics, good Buddhists and bad Buddhists. But hey, as long as you're good, a good blank, then you're good. As long as you're committed and you're zealous and you're sold out to what you believe, then then you'll be accepted by God. This teaching is far removed from the teachings of Scripture. And it's not true. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Just because you are zealous for something doesn't mean that it's good. And the same could be said even about your zeal towards Christianity. You understand that? Because maybe you heard that list and you're like, well, yeah, you shouldn't be zealous for, for Buddhism or, 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 or Islam. or The same towards Christianity. Zeal does not save. Zeal towards the things of God do not save you. We are saved by Christ alone, received through faith alone, given by grace alone. Do not think just because you are excited and you are enthusiastic about TYG, or you're excited and you're enthusiastic about the Bible or about God's work, that you are a Christian because of that zeal. The Jews had zeal for God. They were zealous for God. But as Paul says in verse 2, not according to knowledge. 
He says right there, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. See, this was their problem. They were zealous for God, yes, but it was not according to knowledge. And it's important for us to understand then, what does that mean, knowledge? The word used is not the word gnosis, which means an intellectual knowledge or or a factual knowledge. That's not the word Paul uses because they had that. They knew God's word. They had the gnosis. But the word used here is is, is a compound word, epigenosis, which talks about it affecting the heart. It's talking about having a saving relationship with God that results in living for him. It is knowing God personally. That's the knowledge of knowing him personally, having a saving relationship with him, not just knowing God intellectually. See, some of you have the gnosis, but you do not have the epigenosis. And don't get me wrong. The, the gnosis is good. It's good to have knowledge of God. It's good to grow in your understanding of who God is and what he's done. That's very, very important. But gnosis, that knowledge, is not saving. Is your zeal for gnosis, for the knowledge? You need epignosis. You need a personal relationship with God. That's what they didn't have. Do you know God? Do you know God personally? Affecting your heart, not just the knowledge. Do you have a personal relationship with him? One in which he is your greatest love. One in which that because of this loving relationship, it results in joyfully sacrificial, worshipful living. That's the knowledge. Are you zealous for God? Are you zealous for God? Should a Christian be zealous for God? Should a Christian be zealous for God? Yes, I think so. I think if you're going to be zealous for anything or anyone, who better to be zealous than than for God, right? Be on fire for God. Be zealous for him. Be zealous to know more about him. Be zealous to live for him. And I think some Christians in this room need to wake up and need to have more zeal for God. And Christian, I challenge you with that. Be zealous for God. Because some of you are dragging your way in and out of church without joy, without passion for the Lord. Christian, be zealous for him. Live for him. But this zeal is not salvific. Do you understand the difference? Doing all of these things, being excited about God, it does not save you. If if you think that, then your zeal is misdirected. Direct your zeal to your relationship with God. That's where the zeal ought to be. Not just in the the external. In the, look, I'm going to do this and do that and do that. But your zeal ought to be for God and your love for God and your relationship with God. And it's because of that, out of an overwhelming and an outpour of your love for Christ, because you're zealous for your love towards Him, that now you're zealous to live for Him because of His great love 
for you. That's the difference. So Christian, I'm not saying don't be zealous for him. Yes, be zealous. But what are you zealous for? The works? The knowledge? Or are you zealous for him? Your Savior? Your Lord? Your King? Zealous for your relationship with him. So we see that Israel's zeal is misdirected. Secondly, in this point, we see that Israel's righteousness is misdirected. Israel's righteousness is misdirected. And this we see in verse 3. And while Israel's zeal was misdirected, I think even worse is that their righteousness was misdirected. They got it completely backwards. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They sought to establish their own righteousness. And as a result, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. Look at what it says in verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Like they're all twisted up like a pretzel. Like they, they got it all backwards. So I want to sum this, sum this up by giving you two warnings. I told you I have a lot of set points for my set points, okay? <laughs> Two warnings here of Israel's righteousness being misdirected. The first warning is this. Do not be ignorant of your unrighteousness. Do not be ignorant of your unrighteousness. The problem with man is that we think much higher of ourselves than we should. And I don't just mean men, although we're the worst of it. But I mean humanity. But men are pretty bad at that. Come on, guys. But the problem with man, with humans, humanity, is that we think much higher of ourselves than we should. And of course we'll admit, hey, I'm not perfect. And we may even admit, hey, I know I'm unrighteous. But even so, we are more unrighteous than we likely admit. And we are more unrighteous than we likely are even aware of. The Jews thought they were holy and righteous. Because remember, all the advantages that was listed in chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 9, all these advantages that Israel had, hey, there's some pretty good advantages. But they thought they were holy and righteous because of that. And the problem is that those things were only advantages and by no means made them righteous. And as a result, the Jews did not believe they needed a Messiah. At least not a Messiah to save them from their sins. They believed they needed a Messiah to rescue them from their earthly oppressors, and in this case, Rome. And they were unaware of their desperate need to be saved from their unrighteousness. See, their their misdirected righteousness blinded them from seeing their need for a Savior. You see what I'm saying? Their misdirected righteousness, which was pointed at themselves, it blinded them from seeing, I need a Savior. Has the same thing happened to you? Has the same thing happened to you? Is your righteousness misdirected in a way that points to yourself and in some way says that you're righteous on your own? Do not look at your life. Or your thoughts or or your actions. And then conclude that somehow God loves you because of these things. If so, your righteousness is misdirected. As Romans 3 says, no one is righteous. 
No, not one. The problem is that people ignore this truth. And they mask themselves with righteousness of filthy rags. And they act as if they're good. And the reason this is so dangerous is because you need a savior. You need a savior. But in your masking, you do not realize that you do. And so you continue on. And instead of turning to your savior, you turn to yourself. And your own empty righteousness. This would be like if, if a woman was, was dying of this fatal disease, let's say. This woman's dying. She's dying of fatal disease. But she puts on a bunch of makeup to, to, to assure herself that she's okay. She knows she's dying. But she wakes up in the morning and she ignores it. And she says, I'm just going to put on some makeup. And I'm going to look good. I'm going to feel like, I'm going to pretend like everything's okay. And sure, maybe it makes her feel a little bit better. And maybe it makes her look better to everyone else and even to herself when she looks at herself in the mirror. But it would be foolish of her to ignore her disease completely. It would be foolish of her to ignore going to the doctor and instead just continuing to mask herself with the makeup until she eventually dies. But that's what would happen. She's dying from this disease, but she says, no, I'm ignoring it. I'm not going to treat it. I'm just going to put on this makeup. Eventually, she will die. And that is what some of you are doing. You are dying. Rather, you are dead. You are spiritually dead. And one day, that will come to full fruition. And you will experience eternal death. All the while, you are masking yourself with righteousness. Instead of bringing your disease to the one who has eternal life. To the one who can heal you. And instead you just mask yourself with this self-righteousness. And saying, I'm good. When you need Jesus. Not to paint yourself with more makeup. And if you continue to ignore the fact that, that you are unrighteous. Then you will continue to ignore God's infinite grace. And the righteousness of Christ that can be imputed onto your account. Stop masking yourself. Recognize your unrighteousness and see your need for Christ. So first I said, I said I want to sum this up by giving you two warnings. The first warning was do not be ignorant of your own unrighteousness. The second warning is this. Do not be ignorant of God's righteousness. Do not be ignorant of God's righteousness. We said don't be ignorant of your unrighteousness, but also don't be ignorant of God's righteousness. We must be aware of God's complete and perfect and holy righteousness. It is too often both Christians and non-Christians make little and make light of the righteousness of God. Do you understand That God, in his perfect holiness, absolutely hates and despises even the smallest amount of evil and sin. As he should. Because of who he is. And when you realize how much God detests and abhors sins. 
And you realize how wretched you are. Dripping in your sin. You ought to be terrified. And humbled to the core. Knowing that in God's divine righteous judgment. You stand guilty in your own sin. You understand that? Like when you understand how holy God is. And you understand how sinful you are. That ought to terrify you. That ought to make you tremble. Do not fall to the temptation of making God less holy than he is and making man more holy than he is. Humans seek to do this because they cannot stand such a holy and righteous God and they know that the only chance they have of being accepted is by lowering God and by raising ourselves. And so they measure both God and man based on human standards, which is a fatal deception by the devil himself. We must understand that God is righteous and we are not. See, when, when you start trying to balance the scales and, and bring man up and bring God down, you are creating a false God who is not worthy of worship. And you are creating a false man who is not in need of being saved. Both are fatally wrong. Your righteousness is not found in yourself. It never will be. But righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. Which is our last point as we see in verse 4. We see Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness. And there's just one sub point here. And that is Christ's righteousness is complete. Christ's righteousness is complete. As he says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There is righteousness. That is, there is a way in which we can be made right before God. To be righteous does not mean that God makes all Christians these good, perfect little people. We're big people, Jason. But it does mean that Christians are counted as righteous because they have union with Christ and are covered with His righteousness. How is it possible? Well, first, because Jesus fulfilled the law completely. This is not something that any of us could have done. Every single one of us have broken the law. And every single one of us have sinned against God, but not Jesus. He lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law. And remember, the law was meant to show us our need for Christ. It was never meant to be a ladder in which we climb up, but rather it was meant to be a mirror that shows us our sinfulness. And when we reject the righteousness of God through Christ, we misinterpret and we misuse the law and we make it into something that it was never meant to be. As if it was something that we can fulfill. But instead, we ought to see our breaking of the law and see Jesus' fulfillment of the law and recognize our great need 
for him, for Christ. Without Jesus, we have nothing. We need his righteousness because we have none on our own. See, the Jews thought that they could attain the righteousness of God by their good works. But the righteousness of God can only be attained through faith in the finished work of Christ. And it's because Christ fulfilled the law that he can be our substitute in dying on the cross in our place. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, his righteousness has been transferred and credited onto your account. You understand? Christian, you did not earn one line of righteousness in your ledger. Not one. And yet it is full. Your ledger is full of righteousness because Christ filled it for you. And not only that, but if you are a Christian, your sinfulness was transferred onto his account on the cross. And your wrath was borne on his shoulders. I've, I've preached on this many times. Right, of this exchange. But really, I think the Lord, the Lord blessed me this week in this studying. I mean, I was struck by this. I was humbled by this. Like I said, I've, I've read it, I've preached it many times, but I, I just stopped in my place. And I was humbled. And I thought, this just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, I am unrighteous. I am sinful. I've rebelled against God. I continue to sin against Him. I, I, I have turned my back against God the Creator and sought my own glory instead of His. I've taken His word and said, No! I'm living my own way. I'm unrighteous. And then I'm reading about God's holiness and Christ's righteousness. The Creator, so far above me. And I look at the gap between us and I'm like, why is He even bothering with me? Why is He so patient with me? Why would He even love me? Like, why are we even talking about this? This should be no question. I should be done with instantly. And yet I get his righteousness. You're saying his righteousness is credited to my account? And my guilt and my shame and my wrath is on him, God, the creator? It makes no sense. Like why should this happen? And why did it happen to me? And coming right off of, of, of chapter 9, like it's happened to me because he sovereignly elected me? I, I did not deserve this any more than anyone else. Why, why am I saved? Why do I get Christ's righteousness? And why did he take my wrath? And not someone else who's not a Christian. Because he chose me. Because he decided to love me. Why? I don't know. 
that's what I was I was struck by this. It just makes no sense to me. I live. I receive the love of God. It makes no sense. But thanks be to God for his grace. That was the only conclusion I came to. I said, God, I don't know why you saved me. But I thank you. I thank you for your grace. And if you're here and you are not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, please do not miss the very end of this verse 4. He says, to everyone who believes. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This tells us two things, right? Two more subpoints. First, it tells us that it is open to everyone. To everyone who believes. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your current condition. Salvation is open to everyone. Which means it's open to you. Secondly, what does this tell us? It tells us that it is for those who believe. For those who believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? To believe means to put all your trust in Jesus Christ. To believe means that you are not counting on your righteousness at all. For you know that you have no righteousness of your own. But that you fully trust in Jesus Christ and his perfect righteous life. And in his substitutionary death for you. And in his victorious resurrection. This belief results in confession of sin. The repentance of your sin. And this belief produces a radically transformed life that now lives for Jesus as your risen king. Do you believe? It is Christ's righteousness that we need and that we have in him. As we close here tonight, I want to leave a word to those in here who are not a Christian and those who are indeed in the faith. And then we'll be done, okay? First, to those who are not a Christian, I ask you this, non-Christian. Are you ignorant? Are you misdirected? Are you ignorant? Are you misdirected? Allow me then to direct you to the truth. Allow me to direct you to Jesus. You have no righteousness on your own. And left on your own, you have no hope and no chance of having a loving, saving relationship with God. None. But in Christ, you have life. In Christ, you have hope. Jesus changes everything. So please, put away any self-righteousness. Put away any pride. Put away your rejection of Jesus, your Messiah. And instead, place your faith 
and him and repent of your sins that you may be saved. And we're going to talk about that in more depth next week. To the Christian now, to those who are in the faith, I leave you with one question. Do you have a love for the lost? Christian, do you have a love for the lost? Or does your life reveal that it's all about you? Is your time, your preferences, and your comforts, are they a higher priority than your neighbor hearing of the good news of Jesus Christ? Does your heart ache for the lost? Christian, do you desire and delight in the lost being found? Are you part of kingdom work? It's so easy to go through our day pursuing our advancements and our priorities according to our schedules. Christian, you are an ambassador for Christ. Not an ambassador for your boss, for your teacher, for your parents. Or for your friends. You're not an ambassador for your friends. You're an ambassador for Christ. Live for Him. Represent Him. Speak His truth to others. And do His work for His glory. Love the lost. Christian, love the lost. And in love, speak to them the incredible, eternal truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the best way that you can love them. Remember the love that has been shown to you, Christian. Remember the gospel that has been given to you. And out of love for Christ, love others and speak boldly of his truth. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your righteousness imputed onto us because of Christ. God, thank you that you have saved us. Lord, I pray that we would have a zeal for you, a zeal because of your love towards us and a zeal because we love you and we want to live for you. God, I pray you'd give us a heart for the lost, that we would delight in them coming to know you, that we would be part of that work, that we would not be apathetic in serving you and sharing your gospel. Lord, for those in here who do not know you, God, of those here who maybe have misdirected zeal or misdirected righteousness, God, I pray that you would direct them to you, that they would gaze upon your son, they would see their great need for a savior and that you would save them. Lord, I pray that you'd be honored tonight and glorified even as we discuss these things. You'd speak to us through your spirit. Change us and convict us, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.